Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the 12th class of our 14-class structured study. The uh, email that you all received on Friday has the wrong sutta link. Uh, it's actually next Saturday sutta. Today is the Upada sutta. Many of you have heard that before anyway. Here we go. Uh, this relates to uh, the right effort. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying with the Sakins in Sakara. Venerable Ananda had a question for his teacher. He approached the Buddha, bowed, and sat to one side. Is it true that having admirable friends, admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is half of the well-integrated life? Well-integrated means integrating the Eightfold Path. His teacher, the Buddha, said, don't ever say that, Ananda. Having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is the whole of the well-integrated life. So the Buddha is not talking about just people, but begins with people and who we associate with as part of our Dhamma practice are also people that are likewise practicing the Dhamma. In other words, we're associating our practice with like-minded people, but it also means what we associate with in relation to the Dhamma. So again, it's not just people, it's things that we hold in mind that are um, related to the people, to the friends and acquaintances we might have. So in general, the people that we spend time with that are most important to us outside of family, sometimes inside of family, <clears throat> are those people that we will be, that we think along the same lines. And I'm not just talking about Dharma practitioners. Many people that have come to me questioning their practice and interested in this can't make that transition away from clinging to their, their friends and the associations they have within that particular practice. And that makes it very difficult for them to just practice this. Um, clinging to fabricated views is related to and reflected in clinging to fabricated relationships, beginning with the relationship we have with ourselves. So there's a lot in this sutta talking about right effort. It needs to be focused within the framework of the Eightfold Path. Those that we associate Dhamma practice with, I'm not talking about your life. It doesn't mean that we should only associate with people that come to class on Saturday or Tuesday. But it does mean that we associate our Dhamma practice and our Sangha with people that are actually practicing the Dhamma. Don't ever say that Ananda having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is the whole of the well-integrated life. The practitioner of my Dhamma, who has admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues, can now be expected to avoid distraction, which would arise from unskillful associations, and pursue and fully develop the Noble Eightfold Path. Listen carefully, Ananda, and I will tell you precisely how a practitioner of my Dhamma, who has admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues, avoids distraction and pursues and fully develops the Noble Eightfold Path. This Dhamma practitioner develops right view that is dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation, that results in, the re in relinquishment, relinquishment of much, what? Relinquishment of clinging to fabricated <laughs> views, views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. Excuse me. So just as an example, for many years, my Buddhist practice was based on what I found out in modern Buddhism, um, which is really what I sometimes call Buddhism by common agreement or Buddhism by a Chinese menu practice, meaning we take a little bit of this practice, a little bit from that teacher. Maybe we bring in a little bit of some ancient Joseph Campbell stuff a little bit of poetry and anything else that we can think of. And we call that Dhamma practice. So what that is, is associating our Dhamma practice with all these different practices, 
calling it Buddhist practice and having that um, given validity by the way modern Buddhism is practiced, which is just that way, Buddhism by common agreement, which is anything that I can call and put the Buddhist label on is now my Buddhist practice. So the um, one of the, the uh, emergent forms of modern Buddhism is called engaged Buddhism. And it was, um, what's the right word? It was espoused by one of the um, major modern Buddhist teachers. I won't, I won't say who it is. Uh, person has recently died, but there's a still a big following. And I want to smirch that. But it wasn't what the Buddha taught. And even though a practice is widely practiced, such as modern engaged Buddhism, which is mostly just, I hold in mind the Bodhisattva vow, meaning I'm here for all sentient beings. I'm here out of great compassion, but no development of the Dhamma. And so associating your Buddhist practice with the notion of engaged Buddhism which is really just an angry form of protesting against anything in the world, calling that Buddhist practice, of course, isn't. And it doesn't bring a calm and peaceful mind. And it continues to create agitation in, and conflict in your own mind and, the, and so conflict in the world. It simply, it doesn't mean that people that practice that way are somehow bad or foolish or anything, except in relation to the Dhamma. It's not Dhamma practice. And so you hear me and our other teachers talk about this often, the importance of keeping your Dhamma practice pure. That's right effort. Right effort is engaging in this practice. Is this Dhamma practice or is it not? I'm going to just go back to that. This Dhamma practitioner develops right view. That, and that right view is dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation that results in relinquishment. They also develop right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation, all dependent on seclusion, dispassion, and cessation from ignorant views. This is how a practitioner of my Dhamma, who has admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues, avoids distraction and pursues and fully develops the Noble Eightfold Path. So the Buddha keeps reiterating that, that point. Admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues. That's our Dhamma practice. That's who we look to support our Dhamma practice. The Buddha continues, it is only through fidelity to my Dhamma that one may know that having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is actually the whole of a well-integrated life. The Buddha is basically saying, if you want to know it, you have to practice this way. Again, I'll say it again. It is only through fidelity, practicing the Buddha's Dhamma, that one may know that, that we can develop an understanding of the importance of having admirable people, meaning admirable in relation to the Dhamma practice, or actually practicing this same Dhamma. The Buddha continues, it is first in dependence on me as an admirable friend that those being subject to birth can release from being subject to birth, that those being subject to aging can release from being subject to aging, that those being subject to sickness gain release from being subject to sickness, and those being subject to, to death gain release from being subject to death. And Ken, there's so much in this one paragraph. It is first in dependence on me as the Buddha, meaning we take true refuge in the understanding of a, a human being develop awakening. He gained full human maturity. We accept it, we understand it. And we understand that a human being did this because that's the only way we can take true refuge in a Buddha. We can't take refuge in an imaginary <clears throat> figure because that's just a fabrication, isn't it? But we can take true refuge in the understanding that a human being did what we're trying to do. And if he did it, we can do it. How do we know that? Because we take refuge in, we have an association, an admirable association with this man's Dhamma. And we keep our Sangha well focused on that. And again, it is this sutta and, and many others that led to how we structured this Sangha, which is very similar to the way the Buddha structured his Sangha, the first Sangha. 
the Buddha continues, it is dependence on me as an admirable friend that being subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair had gained release from sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. The, these characterizations are how the Buddha describes dukkha. You remember that, right? For those that have gained release in this manner from dependence on me, can one know how, how having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is actually the, the whole of a well-integrated life? Again, it's only through right Dhamma practice that one can know this. I thought that was the end of it. Just for emphasis, I'm going to say it again. For those that have gained release in this manner, through this practice, not through something else, from dependence on me, can one know how having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is actually the, the whole of a well-integrated life. So, of course, not just having not just having Dhamma classes is the whole of a Dhamma practitioner's life. Of course, that's not what the Buddha is saying. It's not just schlepping to something called a Buddhist, a Buddhist class. That class is actually focused on and developed through the Buddhist Dhamma. So we're not having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues. It's not saying that other people in our lives are not worthwhile and they're not important relationship, relationships. In, in fact, I would say they become even more important and even more worthwhile when we can maintain Dhamma practice with those relationships. And I bet everyone here, maybe we could even talk about that as you go around the room, <clears throat> notices how your admirable association with this Sangha now allows you to be more meaningfully present for other people. So let's start with Slav, since he was the first one up this morning. Good morning, Slav. Uh, good morning, John. Good morning, everybody. And thank you. It's very interesting. Uh, you bring to my memory, uh, because I used to practice a lot uh, Zen, and of course, uh, for Bodhisattva vows. Yep. And uh, I always was wondering, yes, it sounds very good, it's uh i'll be numberless i vow to save them but inside my mind it's always how i able to save somebody if i'm not able to self save myself yeah, i'm still irritated i'm still irritated <laughs> i still frustrate with people and starting kind of like lie to myself because i realize yeah, it's, yeah. it's something fabrication but i still keep in practice yeah, thank you. It was very yeah, good. Thank you, Slav. Yeah, you reminded me. I, I took the Bodhisattva vow, as most uh, serious modern practitioners might do. And it was a long, elaborate ceremony over three days in this beautiful monastery in Woodstock, New York. Um, if you're ever up there, just go to KTV up on top of Mead Mountain. It's just a magnificent place with wonderful people. But they practice something completely different. And so I went through this long ceremony, three-day ceremony. I think there was about 140 people all doing this uh, in this beautiful meditation hall. And uh, the, the teacher, <clears throat> someone I might have called my root guru, was a, a gentleman named Ken Kenpo Carther Rinpoche, meaning teacher. And he was just one of these, just a wonderful human being. Um, he didn't know... Uh, how to speak English, and uh, of course, I didn't know his language, but we connected, and there was an interesting part in the ceremony. At the end of the ceremony, um, everybody goes up, and you, you kneel down in front of um, Ken Pocarther, and he gives you this white veil, and that signifies your entrance into this, uh, into their community. And you're, you're, you're not even considered a novice monk. I wasn't but it was the beginning of that process. And you took the Bodhisattva vow, which is the vow to put aside in that tradition, put aside your own awakening until all sentient beings are awakened, which is the traditional Bodhisattva vow. When the Buddha referred to himself prior to his awakening, he always said, when I was an unawakened Bodhisattva, what does he mean? He meant that I was a human being imbued with great compassion for all other human beings, like most human beings are but lacking the understanding to do anything worthwhile with that. And so that's, an, that's a vow that keeps you focused on not awakening. 
because your focus isn't on a Dhamma. Your focus now is might be engaged Buddhism because that's the modern form of the Bodhisattva vow. I took the vow. I was very serious. At the end of the meditation, at the end of the ceremony, I noticed that the, you, the last thing you do is you touch your forehead to Kenpo's forehead. And those that know me, I was brought to tears as I'm doing it. But I noticed him as he was doing this with the people in front of me. And all he did was touch head to touch foreheads. He didn't say anything. Kind of messed up the story. One of the things that was curious to me is on their schedule, they say 10 a.m. every morning is the big sit with all the monks and residents, and you go into this beautiful hall, and you're all sit. And for those three days, I was the only one in that meditation hall. And later on, I was, I still, it was a month or two later, I eventually walked up to a monk and said, on your schedule, it says 10 o'clock, everybody meets in the meditation hall for meditation. And he said, yeah, we all meditate. Nobody was ever there in the meditation hall. They were fooling themselves that they actually practiced. But Ken Carter said, he doesn't know English, I touched his head because he noticed me. He noticed me sitting there every day. He said, keep meditating. And I, it, it still brings me to tears to this day. He understood the importance in them that I was engaged in right practice. To make a long, long story short, to make it, I'll make it medium length. <laughs> I took that vow seriously, and about three days later, I engaged in a private ceremony to disavow myself of that vow because I realized it was ridiculous. Why, how could I ever think of doing something like putting my own awakening aside before, in, until all sentient beings are awakened when that's not possible? Wait, contrary, it contradicts the first noble truth. There is dukkha. It's not about salvation. It's about individual awakening. Yes, Jim. How long before you took the vow did you know you were going to be taking the vow and what the vow was? Oh, um, that's a great question. Approximately. I mean, it doesn't have to be. Um, it was probably about <clears throat> six months before. So you knew for six months that you were going to be taking this vow, and it wasn't until you actually took it that you... Ah, yeah. That you were like, wait a minute, this is not okay. Yes, because that's like really something to to see because there's such there was such an opportunity there for regret and fear and reaction. I mean, prior to post. getting into yeah post yeah once you took the vow to go. Why did I do that? You know, what what does it mean? And now I'm like, and then that didn't happen for you. You just. I didn't quite understand it, but thank you for bringing yeah. it up because I made this point. Yeah. I did it because I was associated with these wonderful people, this right. wonderful practice and the wonderful monastery. I, I often said, kiddingly, that I wish I could be a Tibetan Buddhist because I love the big hats. <laughs> I got the greatest hats. I got those big long horns, right? You know, the, the horns are 15 feet long. <laughs> The monasteries are, you know, I mean, anything, take it, take a ride up just to see the place. It's magnificent. And I wanted so much to be a part of it. I love this guy, this Ken Pocarpa, even though those are the only English words he ever spoke to me was keep meditating. But, you know, I realized as soon as I took the vow and then it became me. That yeah, later, you, had, you had enough concentration, though, to not to like in that moment see that and then not get caught up in what that meant. Yeah, but under, <laughs> underneath all that, that, that six yeah. month thing, yeah, the six months coming up, there was always this annoying sure. thing that this isn't right. But I did that for, <clears throat> I can't remember how many years ago that was now, but I did that for 15 years at least in all these different practices. And I, I think I practice every modern practice out there trying to find one that fit. And again, I did that, that Buddhism by common agreement too, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And everybody that I practiced with said, do the same thing. The, the person who is probably, who is known as the worldwide leader of Buddhism, if you will, and again, I don't need to say his name, but he says that, that all religions and all Buddhism is all the same. It all resolves in the same thing. And it doesn't. Well, they all resolve in salvation. The Buddhist Dhamma results in understanding. 
it's a significant difference <clears throat> because salvation leads to I'm going to save all sentient beings because that's what I'm associating with. But when you associate with an eightfold path, that's what you do. And it was such a great point to bring up. Yeah. Thank you. What did you do with your next day? What did oh, you, I, it, what did your effort take you to um, the next day? The next day, not much, but eventually it took me to here because that was that was a, a seminal moment in my understanding that I put a lot of time and effort into something that I now have to accept to me was nonsense. I find it super interesting. Like it takes Epicico and some version of effort to transition to then you're in the right effort because you've discovered the Buddhist teachings. Yes. What, what they it's a leap said, of faith. It's an absolute leap of faith to junk this tradition and this culture and this family and this community and it, jump into nothing. It wasn't it wasn't a leap of faith though. It's, it's For some bad. reason, and I and I don't think that uh, you know, I, I think I'm the most ordinary human being that was ever born. I don't think I have any any special mm -hmm. qualities, you know. You read my uh Read my history. But for some but, reason, you started to say. But I believe that, I believe that there was, I believe that if a human being <clears throat> actually awakened, he must have left something here for human beings to understand, hmm. not something that's magical or mystical or unattainable. It just didn't, at that point in my life, it didn't make sense to me that this could have, that all of this could have happened without some authenticity to it and that's what got me looking at the sutta patakas but it still took me years after that to realize this is what the buddha actually taught was just four noble truths and and there's some people that say well mm -hmm. your that journey was important you had to go through all of that to get to where you are i think that's a lot of nonsense because i see people like you that come to my brilliant teaching <laughs> it's not i just i'm just <clears throat> teaching what the buddha taught and get it you know, so it's not just me. You, you all are practicing the Dhamma here. And again, it's not because of my brilliance. It's because of the brilliance of this man 2,600 years ago. And even though the Dhamma is so corrupted in every book I've ever read, meaning it, it all has magical, mystical, salvific connotations to it, the underlying truth, Four Noble Truths, is still there. And Siddhartha's voice is still there. Mm. Hear this sutta. He's saying right effort is practicing his dharma, associating with his dharma. Well, don't I ask? That was my other thought: is that even like in the experiences that you had, I mean, you still got enough exposure to the dharma, even though it was diluted, to have some right view. Yeah. Didn't it take but most Buddha? of it was like I I don't think I heard Noble Truths or Eightfold Paths more sure. than five times sure. in fifteen years, and nobody ever taught what they were. Sure, no, I get it. But, but yeah, but innate understanding of right That yeah, you did. Well, I think okay. it's yeah, I think it's valuable. I just think that's valuable to point out because it's it is there like what you're saying is you're an ordinary human being, and there is like this, there is this. Innate. Need for understanding. Yes. And I think every yeah. human being has yeah. that, don't mm -hmm. they? Which is, and because of the structure of our society, that usually moves <clears throat> towards spiritual or religious practices because we think we can we can fulfill that need there. Right. We don't understand that the need is to understand what it means to be a human being. It's what Siddhartha described in the Navara Sutta, isn't it? When he, he yeah. found himself caught up in that feedback loop of looking for magic you know it must be magic that's going to solve this riddle of me instead of wait a minute his great awakening was the riddle of me is being in me right. understanding what it means to be a human being not something not a savior but of course greed a, a mind rooted in greed and aversion because of its own deluded thinking will naturally get to that point that i must be something other than or greater than i am more than a six property person i have to be a if I'm here to save everybody, I got to be a whole hell of a lot more than little old Johnny Haspel to save everyone, or yeah. little old Siddhartha Gautama, and he realized that. 
And he, uh, and he gave that liberating thought to all of us. Please, Becky. What I think is amazing, you say you're not special, but uh -oh. what I think is amazing <laughs> is that you, that you were able to not get caught up in that because every religious person that I've really ever been around is just caught up in that. They would, they would, I mean, that, that sort of magic allure of, oh, there's something bigger than me and I'm doing this now so I can, I can get there. And they, they don't stop and do what you did. You know, I'm just saying this. I, 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 I think a lot of that has to do with, with recovering from alcoholism through the original 12 steps. And one of the things that my sponsor, the guy, the sponsor is a guy who takes a few to step. Hopefully they know what they're doing. Mine did. And one of the things he said, he says, if you're going to listen to advice from me, he was talking about people in the rooms, because most people in the 12 step rooms aren't sober. They're not people you really should be listening to. And he told me that. He said, before you listening to, listen to people, he says, get to know. Look at the life they're living and see if there's somebody you want to listen, learn from. And I started applying that and not remembering that, but to different teachers that I had. One of my greatest friends of all time is a guy that ran a monastery near and five miles away from Mead Mountain. Um, and he was the head of one of the largest lineages, lineages, lineages in America. He's, he's since passed. And we, and after this, there were Sunday services attended by about 150 people. And then after the services, they had this big potluck dinner. But he had an addiction to cigarettes and hot dogs. And we'd, we'd sneak off in his Mustang, go flying down Route 28, and <clears throat> him, uh, chain smoking. Can't wait to get these hot dogs. And he'd eat these like crazy. And again, I love the guy. And what I was looking at, here's a guy that can't control his, and he, he actually died of emphysema, he smoked himself to death. That had no, no concentration, no control. And I noticed that in other teachers. I, would, I used to go up to, uh, yeah. uh, I noticed teachers that were leading huge organizations that were giving teachings blasted out of their minds, completely drunk. But because they were held in this position, even the students said, this is, I mean, they said this, isn't it remarkable? He's so far awakened that he can give meaningful teachers while, teachings while he's blasted out of his mind. All I'm thinking is, listen, I'm spending a lot of money to listen to a drunk. I can go back to the bars to do that, really. And so that started me looking at what they're, it, it seemed to me, maybe this is where the understanding, the extraordinary John Haskell came in. It seemed to me that if a practice was something I should, follow the teacher should at least be living a life that i want to live and i i gave up smoking long before i didn't want to be addicted to cigarettes or hot dogs or anything else imaginary and so it really was the teachers and some of the people that got me saying there's something not quite right here i started writing this a year years ago and i'll probably never finish it but it had to do with this there's sexual scandals in almost every form of modern Buddhism. Almost every form of modern Buddhism has some sexual scandal associated with it. And I'm, it's just the truth. And that's re and the only reason I say that is that should give all of us pause to think maybe there's something not quite right. If my teacher can abuse little boys and little girls, maybe I don't want to follow him. And yet that's going on in some of the most, you know, still. To this day, I don't, I don't want to get on my high horse about that. But again, look at the teachers we have. And if you don't like how they're living their life, if you think that I'm not somebody that you'd like to emulate as far as a Dhamma practice is, you probably shouldn't listen to me. Right? But that's true about anyone that you might listen to. So a great discussion. Thank you for getting to it. Let's, uh, let's get around the room. Hello, Brian. Hello. Um, I was going to say about your disavowing 
I could I can explain to you what electricity is and how it works, but sometimes you just have to stick the fork in the light socket. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. The 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 important thing is to not stick it in twice. Yep. Yeah. And I, but I kept doing it. I again I bounced around <laughs> from this practice to that practice and um but I'm just again thankful for the Sangha, thankful for my newfound wise associations, and it does lead to peace and contentment. So I thank all of you for that. And thank you, Brian. Hello, Tom. Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Um yeah, similar to um, what Brian shared, it's um, the Dharma does help you to navigate friendships and relationships in a wiser way and to get more out of them. Um, it, it also does, I mean, inevitably, you do, at least in my experience, end up sort of um letting go of certain relationships or friendships that otherwise you may have felt were serving you even if they probably weren't um at least not from a dharma perspective so um there's certainly a a sense of you, you have to go through a little bit of a sense of loss there i think um yeah they're and, yeah which which I, yeah yeah, it's it's perhaps a necessary, well, definitely a, a a necessary loss in certain cases. But um, yeah, so I guess again that coming full circle, <clears throat> what what Brian said, that's that's why the sangha is even more important, um, and you know the the value that that I get from this sangha. Um, so yeah, um, speaking of which. Um, I would love to already start um, planning for the retreat. If it's going to be a retreat next year around um, summertime, um, I'm not sure if the dates are set yet, but um, they are. They are brilliant. Yeah, At the end of June, you let that last weekend of June into the, into July. All right, great. I'll start looking at flights. Yeah. Oh, good, 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 good. Thank you, John. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. In interesting discussion. Um, there's. A, it seems to me a lot of fear attached to people exploring what would be unfamiliar or unconventional thoughts, uh, and that inhibits them from looking at anything other than what is generally accepted. Um, you know, the human brain is kind of wired to solve problems, right? And it, it goes back to what you said about people are always looking for an answer or a reason or why am I here? Or what's my purpose? Uh, yeah. But you generally aren't exposed to um, anything but very strict kind of uh, structures. And uh, you have to be willing to take a bit of a chance to go outside the conventional thinking and understandings in order to discover uh, the Buddhist Dhamma and other um, those things that are associated in terms of the Sangha, which is a support group. And like Brian and, and Tom have said, you've <laughs> got to you got to be willing to go out on your own and choose new new associations or wise associations and that's difficult for humans to do because we do have a, a need to be associated and connected to humanity yeah. it's uh, as much as you try to do otherwise which i've given that a try and it doesn't work spectacularly well um caves tend to get cold and lonely in the winter time yeah and uh without without the structure um, the support of the Sangha or a group like the Sangha, 
this one in particular is exemplary. And without the Dhamma as a guiding path, you really are not going to find much other than solitude. And that in and of itself is not really going to lead you anywhere. Um, yeah, I, 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 maybe it sounds like a broken record, but it really, I appreciate the Sangha so much. Um, it's really opened up a whole world for me. And um, I've thought about sending up the, the Buddha signal, like the bat signal here in the oil field. But <laughs> <laughs> so far, I haven't, haven't got much of a response. It's out here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. No, th thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Jeff. Andrew, may I put you on camera? You don't have to be. If you'd rather not. Not for that. Not a simple question. It's only tangentially related to our discussion this morning. Can you define in simple terms jhana meditation? Yeah, concentration. That's what jhana means, concentration. So it, it just defines the reason why we're engaging in meditation. So it's consistently not being distracted by thoughts and feelings. Yeah. And this, that, the verbiage that I use relates directly to the Buddhist teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness. You know, we first become mindful of the breath of the body. That's how we begin jhana. Then they said, be mindful of feelings arising and passing away. Be mindful of thoughts <clears> arising <throat> and passing away. And finally, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is to be mindful of the present quality of mind, which means a dispassionate mindfulness. So the thing, last thing that I say is be at peace with a less than peaceful mind. You know, that's that's kind of the essence of Dharma practice, which also points to the fact that we don't eliminate stress. This isn't about stress elimination. It's about understanding stress and understanding dukkha, how it arises and passes away. And not that, so if we do that first in jhana, that is a direct practice of not taking other things personally off our cushion. Right? Do you see the, the connection between not taking a feeling or a thought personally in meditation, not getting distracted by it? And off our cushion, we can apply it in just that same way. It's a great question. Um, John, is it? Would you mind if I asked a follow up question? Sure. No, I don't mind related, at all. Related to that. Um, so, there's one thing I've always, I've always meant to ask you this, and I keep forgetting. Um, in the instructions for meditation, we use the word while. Right, so focus on your breath. And I can't remember the exact phrasing right now, but while noticing feelings and thoughts. Yeah. That word has sometimes confused me because it feels like I can't do both things. I'm either focusing on my breath or I'm noticing feelings or thoughts. So is there, I mean, is it possible to do both at the same time or is there a, is, is it that sort of, and again, I'm not sure if this connects to the four jhanas, but if that sort of point of entry is obviously focusing on the breath, but once you go down the, jha, the jhanas and your concentration deepens, does it come to a point where you're purely noticing, you're, you're actually, the, the, you're not even focusing on your breath anymore. You're just noticing feelings and thoughts sort of coming and going away and so the, the breath itself is, is no longer the sort of the focal point that's yeah that that's you're you're describing the fourth foundation of mindfulness yeah. the fourth quality of mind so while is pointing to feelings and thoughts are always arising and passing away and during during that as during a human being's lifetime you know if you're alive you have feelings and thoughts arising and passing away Jhana gives us the concentration to be mindful of our breath or using the breath as the point of uniting that mind in its body while feelings and thoughts are always arising and passing away. So even in our sleep, you know, there's, there's thoughts arising and passing away, aren't they? Um, we're, we're doing that same thing, meaning we're have, we have a restful, calm, peaceful mind that is not distracted by feelings or thoughts and simply continues. Whether it's on our cushion, you know, be mindful of my breath and feelings and thoughts are arising and passing away. So while those thoughts are arising and passing away, it's, so it's a, it's a pointer to not being distracted by those things. So you're perceiving it correctly. 
John, remember Lorna and her description? Yeah. The, the undercurrent, she yeah. described it as mm -hmm. her breathing, but then there was this undercurrent of her thoughts and feelings. Yeah, she had said, Lorna, she, she used to come to us. She had such a beautiful way of saying that. She said that her, it's like her breath is up here and her thoughts are down here. In other, in other words, her her breath is, is uh, it's that phrase everybody's using today, top of mind. I hate that way, that phrase. <laughs> Top of the mind, shouldn't it be? So the, the, the primary focus is on my breath. But while I'm alive for that, you know, whatever length of time it is, there's always feelings and thoughts arising and passing away. They, that comes in handy when we're coming in contact with the world so we can use our thoughts and our feelings that are generated by being out into the world, but now from a well-concentrated mind. We don't get overwhelmed or distracted by our feelings or by our thoughts or simply present. So on our cushion, we're mindful of our breath while thoughts and feelings are arising and passing away and off our cushion, it's the same thing. We're well concentrated. I, I meet someone on the street, I might have a wonderful feeling, but I don't grasp after that wonderful feeling. Or it might be someone who's aggravating to me and that's all that it is. And the next moment, you know, I, I'm calm and peaceful. Another a great insightful question, Tom. Thank you. Becky, may I put you on camera? Sure. <clears throat> Good morning. I think I got you. Um, well, I feel like I, that's got to be like wanna, not mom. Grab Andrew. Oh, okay. Well, Sorry. There we go. I'll move over here. Right, you're good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I sort of want to wanted to follow up on what Andrew and Tom have been saying um, and what you reminded us that Laura used to say. And I, I think it's helpful to think of it that way. I think of it as having your, your mind, I do feel like your mind is up here and your thoughts that continually, that continuum, yep. continuous thoughts coming and going and passing away. It's like you're, it's like you're giving yourself room in between what your mind is doing and what your thoughts are trying to get your mind to do. Yep. And that room is what I really think of as the concentration, <clears throat> sort of like the concentration gap. Yeah. And when you're off your cushion, what happens is when something happens that causes, is about to cause a reaction in you, you feel it come up and like interfere with that gap. <laughs> and then it's a great description. You have you a moment. You have a moment. If you have the concentration and you're really there, sometimes it doesn't happen. You just it, you're just overwhelmed. Okay. Um, but if you can if you can remember that concentration or think about, then you can go. Oh, this is what's happening. I need to take a breath. That, and yeah, I was going to ask, so how do you get, how do you regain that concentration? Yeah, I need to take a breath okay. because if I don't take a breath, I'm going to lose my mind. But and it's just, that, really it's just that direct and simple. And I'm just going to be, you know, it's not going to be fun. <laughs> and, and the individual, the individual human being is in complete <clears throat> control of that or they're not. Right. Well, again, and that's that's the essence of Dharma practice, isn't and, it? Being you know, in control it, of it, our minds by being in control of our breath. And the, the Sangha, all Sangha members, all Sangha people, our family of Sangha just helps so much. Just to know that you, you know, just to know that you have this. Yeah. Um, and when you're around people, I was with, with really, really good friends this week. And when you have a right view and you're with those friends, you are available for them in a way that you've never been available before. And you also feel a calm and a, you, you feel good being available for them and being. Yeah. 
But you know, I find myself sometimes though falling into judgment, which I have a hard time because you see what they're doing and it, you just, you just feel sad sometimes that you can't just say, you know, you're really lucky. You should just, you know, <laughs> quit focusing on that and focus on the Focus on Dama. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll be quiet now. Don't put me on camera. I'll that, never you, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that last is, is, that is the essence of Dhamma practice, though, isn't it? When when people are getting us agitated, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. And this is not I can't, and I'm not a savior. Yeah. It's so much more. It's easy to, to do that with someone who we, we really don't know. But when it's they're close people, it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna yeah, insist right. that yeah. their life is my life. You know, I, I have family members that it'd be easy to say they should be living a different life, and I would have a better relationship with them, but they're not. Mm -hmm. you know? So, and for me to to impose that on them is just creating more tension in their life. You know, I did that years ago. You and, be different yeah, and you really don't realize when you're doing it yeah, and yeah. stop it. Yeah, it was always a kill trip. While you know, you're with your friends, you can yeah. realize that you're about to go a little too far and, and just... yeah. That's wise restraint, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Thank you for you're talking about wise restraint. Thank you, Becky. Yeah, thank you. Now my teacher Kevin. See where you are. Is that you? Kind of in the middle here. Oh, there you are. In terms of sort of turning the boat around, uh, wanted to thank Brian, Tom, and Jeff for their words, uh, their wise association through through distance. I've had a tough week. Um, got news of a friend that passed away, and the associations are from the past and you know I, I appreciate what Tom brought up because as sort of David had mentioned earlier this Ahipasiko moment and the path of the Arahant as the Buddha said discards rather than acquires and, and this is this is the truth of stress that relationships are stressful life is stressful sometimes more stressful for others than some and the Dhamma and the Sangha provide us with the orientation and, and the support necessary to continue this path. So I don't have any other words. I appreciate all of your presence and your practice. And John, thank you very much today. All right, thank you, Kevin. Sorry to hear about your loss. There's no loss. It's, it's, yeah. It was an honor to spend time with this guy. That's the right way to see it. Impermanence into beings. I'm a teacher, Ron. Yeah, I remember that uh, that time when uh, Lorna mentioned that feeling she had of uh, being here and seeing feeling the thoughts just as clouds passing away underneath her. Mm -hmm. And my reaction was that uh, when I'm up there watching my breath and I look down, I see it cauldron of soup <laughs> boiling away <laughs> um, and you let it boil but uh, you know that too it's, it's just a little boil and uh, and watch it and, you know, pick up the bits yeah. and have your soup because the soup's going to be there anyhow and you're much more accepting of Ram in, the, in that moment aren't you yeah definitely um, and why should and, and, and but it took a long time for me to get to this point because uh, I really didn't want that soup there. Before mm -hmm. You call that, that self-loathing, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, and I thought that the, the the purpose of meditation was to get rid of the soup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know. And the soup is you. Throw it out. Yeah. Uh, and no, the soup is here, yeah. and it can be you know nourishing and tasty. Yeah. <laughs> That's good soup. <laughs> you put all that time and ingredients into cooking it, so yeah, yeah. Might as well and enjoy it's, it. And it's you know, 
and it's it, it's life, you know. Yeah. And all my time, just like you, all my time spent in in different practices and, and different endeavors. Um, just you know, there's the soup. Yeah, and it's just like that. I, you know, I could easily say I wasted so much time with my my friend in the Mustang or this teacher or that teacher <clears> traveling <throat> here and traveling there. Yeah. I don't see it as a waste of time. Although I do say I wish I came across me and my website when I was 26 instead of later yeah. on life. But that, I mean, that's just but, you know, it, that's not what happened. That was yeah. not in the soup. Uh, yeah. But the, the most important and significant thing in my life is first getting off of drugs and alcohol, but then finding the Dhamma, because this is the one thing that actually gave me what I always wanted. I didn't know exactly what it was, but once I found it, it was, yeah, this is it. Life is fulfilling now, not because of all the things that I have. Those that moved me last week know that I don't have a lot, and not most of it is 50 years old. But every moment of my life is meaningful. I'm, you know, maybe you believe me or maybe you don't, but it is. And it's, and it's only because of this, because I'm able to stay present for it and not need this moment to be any different than it is. I get to hang around with people like yeah. you. Dollar teacher, Jen. Hi. Where are you? Where are you? I had... Where'd you go? Where you I had... Um, <laughs> quite a few things floating around in my head, but Kevin and Rom just whoosh, <laughs> put them all into words perfectly. So I don't feel like I need to say anything else. Um, just the, yeah, actually, no, I will, I will, because I want to underscore. Um, uh, the Buddha, the Dhamma asks us to discard instead of acquire. Is that what you said? The Buddha yeah. said that. Right. So, right. So that kind of goes back to what Jeff was saying about doing things that are uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. also why the Sangha is so important because, again, the nature of mind which we're all talking about quite a bit today in our, you know, I would call it biology, but you know, the, the Buddha talked about the mind and how, and, and we want, we will do the thing that, ensures our survival, at least in our own mind. So we're, 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 we're bound by this tendency to fit in. Yeah. Even in our thinking, yeah. even allowing ourselves to think certain ways can be influenced by whether or not we feel safe to think that way. Yeah, which is a today. super, super subtle undercurrent that we might not even be aware of without yeah. concentration. So that's where you fall into self-righteousness. That's why that's why the Sangha is so important because it is it is providing a safety in numbers of individuals that are thinking in a particular way. And that allows the people who land here to feel safe enough to think outside the box, to think in a way about, to, to consider discarding instead of acquiring. Because again, acquiring is another tendency that we, you know, bolsters our sense of safety. Yeah. So, you know, doing something that other people aren't doing and that thing being discarding, you know, those are two, um, that th those are the things that the Dom is asking us to do. So, and that will, of course, bring us to a place of peace and calm and understanding. <clears throat> But there's that kind of hump to get over it, which is why it's so important. 
think Kevin said it better. <laughs> no, very well said, Paula Teacher Jen. Paula Teacher David. Hey, John. This practice is a practice of understanding. It's a practice of understanding the soup. It's a practice of understanding the second arrow. And Andrew said something. You do jhana not to be distracted, but it's a practice of noticing the distraction. Our lives are distracting. Our lives are filled with joy and loss but just be aware of it. Generally says it so well. <laughs> you do. It's, it, you know, you're not looking to push it away or discarding things. It's to understand things because you're going to have those things. Okay. And, you know, I always thought of this song as like a, this laboratory. It's a very confined laboratory of like-minded people, associations. But when you're out in the world, you're just hit with hundreds and thousands of points of contact with people. And I'm a better qualified person for each of those contacts now because yeah. that association that I'm about to make is formed by this saga and this dhamma and this, this understanding. And it makes me better qualified. So I don't need to necessarily look for only like-minded people because mm -hmm. I go into that contact with someone that in the past it would be so just absolutely opposite thing mm -hmm. and I'm able to just take this understanding and it's just a more gentle peaceful encounter okay. and that's it's not something that you have to grab onto it just becomes a normal way to deal with people and situations and frustrations. Yeah. We realize in the Dhamma that if, if there's conflict in any situation, it's because we brought it there. You know, if, if conflict arising has to arise in my mind, it doesn't arise in yours or the world's. I mean, we can see it out in the world, but if, if I'm conflicted, it's because of the way I'm thinking in this moment. I, I can't blame it on you or worldly conditions, can I? Because none of it is personal. Kevin. Associations are distractions and are distracting and you know, stressful. And yeah, if they we can bring be. our right effort and our practice, our sense of calm that, that we're developing and understanding. And we, we, we're in a stressful situation See it with a calm mind or a calmer mind. And uh, yeah, I mean, Buddha almost could have said that. <laughs> You know, associations well, you are stressful. Our associations are, you know, are, are distractions and stressful, like you, like you say, because yep. they are. And that distraction is always rooted in me wanting something to be different than it is, always. Mm -hmm. And it, it is that simple, you know, but it, it can get um, rather nuanced when we actually apply this. But again, that's why it's a practice. That's why we. That's why we integrate, you know, the sutta. It's about right effort. If we want to engage in the Dhamma, we practice that sixth aspect of the Eightfold Path. And isn't it interesting that the Buddha included that? And he made a point of saying, yes, you have to actually practice in this way. But if you do, you get this, what I think is the greatest gift or association that you can find. It's yeah. Saga, right? See you around. Um, anybody else have any questions or comments before we finish with Meta, as we always do? I just want to add one thing that came to mind when you were speaking of the soup. It is an undercurrent of soup that sometimes burns your tongue, yeah, yeah. but sometimes makes you shriek with joy yeah. <laughs> because mm -hmm. of the flavor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I'm going to make some vegetable barley soup today. <laughs> 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 we'll finish with meta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your breath and your body and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on meta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness, who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. 
humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none <clears throat> deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, one cherishes all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Peace. Thank you, John. See you all. Bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.